Hello. Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, we have a very special guest. Her name is Hattie Thomas Whitehead, and she's publishing a book ne next month. The title of the book is Giving Voice to Lindentown. It's about her story uh, in Georgia, and it rings true to other stories, something I've heard here in Southern California, the story of uh, Charles and Willa Bruce in Manhattan Beach. But I see a lot of similarities between something I followed about an intimate domain that was, uh, I think, unjustly imposed. But she can talk more about that. So Hattie Thomas Whitehead, are you there? Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Hattie Thomas Whitehead. I was born in a small town um, in, in Georgia, Athens, Georgia. And I was born in a community called Lennontown. I was born in 1948. So my... I was born in 1948, and I had three sisters and three brothers. There were seven of us, and a mother and father. In the community that I was born in, it was a community of relatives and family. It had three streets. Two was unpaved, and one was paved. And it was a Black community. It was uh, low-income. We had low income, but however, this community was made up of hardworking men and women who made 10 to $8 a week salary. But off of that 10 to $8 a week salary, the community reached 60% home ownership. We were, as children, we were accountable for, to all adults in the community. It was no such thing as talking back. We were accountable for the whole community, in any adults in the community. We were able to play all over the community as children. We were, like I said, we were poor, but we were happy children. We would nestle in a community about four blocks from UGA, University of Georgia Stadium. And we were surrounded by white communities on all sides. So we were, we were, this was, we, this was like in 1958 when old enough when I can remember, uh, we lived in a shotgun house, all, all nine of us, three rooms, living room, bedroom, and kitchen. And um, the, the street was mud, it was unpaved. And during that time, we, um, the community had asked the city of Georgia, had petitioned the city of, city of Athens to pave the street. The city agreed and approved to pave it. And another, the other street that was unpaved called London Road, but they never were paved. So the city and the University of Georgia entered into a, um, an urban renewal contract in 1962. And it was with the federal government. It was part of a federal government program, correct? It was a, it was a, it was like a HUD. It was a housing program. It's now known as HUD, but it was a federal government program at the time. Uh, early on, I think it was in um, 1949, the universities could not um, be a part of the urban renewal. But I think in, in 10 years later, they were allowed to be a part of this urban renewal program. But we have data 
back in, I think it was in 1920s, that told about how uh, the university, we got the data from letters saying that they wanted this property. They called it a black slum area. Black slum, it was 22 acres. But they wanted this property to expand to build dormitories. So they wanted so that it. was the urban renewal was to expand the university. It was a majority black, though. There were, I mean, wasn't there uh, like 20 percent? They were also kind of uh, under like maybe poor whites. Is that true? Or was it all 100 percent African-American? Lenintown, Lenintown was 100 percent African-American. It was 100 percent black because we call black in that day. It was 100 percent black. There were no, now the urban renewal project, the whole project maybe have included some areas, I see. a different part in a different community, but our community, Leonardtown was 100%. 100%. And would you call your childhood up until you were 14, would you kind of call it kind of uh, idyllic or, you know, kind of peaceful, self-contained? It seemed like you guys had, had a pretty kind of, ideal kind of it's kind of it reminded me of kind of a rural peaceful environment would you agree with that it was very rural and and in sort of peaceful environment because we were all self-sustaining you know all everything that we needed in the community was there we had plumbers we had electricians we had um uh, contractor workers we had builders we had architects they, they were not called architects. They didn't have the title, but they could build. So we had everything that we needed in the community there that we needed to be self-sustainable. And you guys had open space. The kids could play outside, fresh air, creeks. We played outside every day, every day. In fact, we didn't have a playground. We, had, we played between the houses because we had no grass in the front yards, all the front yards were dirt. So we, because we played there all the time. So one year the kids, um, the older kids, the older um, boys in the area decided that they would fashion us a playground at the edge of the community. We call it the Creek. So they fashioned us a playground. They um, cut down all the bushes and they took vines off the trees a number of trees and throw it over land of a lamb of a tree and they made us a swing. So we could swing back and forth across the creek. That was the most memorable um, playground that we ever had. We 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 practically lived at that play, play, playground and we were very, very happy. And your parents also at that time when it was Town moved from rental housing to build their own house. Is that correct? Yes, because the rental houses did not belong uh, to, they were just rental. That was a shotgun house. So what we had had to do in 1958, the, uh, the lady that owned the property told my parents they had to move because she was going to sell the property. But understanding that nobody in the area knew what was going on. The Blacks, the, our parents, nobody knew what was going on. But she told us that my parents, they had to move. So what my parents did was my dad bought, they wanted to continue to live in the community. So my father purchased a lot on Peabody Street. 
and moved from that same year. It was the latter part of that year. He asked the men in the community to help him build a house, and they did. The men in the community built our house on Peabody Street. So later, before, I think it's around December of 1958, we moved from South Finley to Peabody Street with, with the uh, help of the men in the community. Right. So you had home ownership. Your family now had property val property ownership at that time. And then yeah. you kind of had some difficulties with the planning uh, department, correct? Water we, and sewage. My parents had a lot of difficulty. They asked Mr. Uh, one um, man in the community was like an architect. He built my, our house and he would, they, my father and him went back and forth down to, trying to get the um, the information they needed to get the license, I mean, get the correct documents to build a house. And they were told that we would, that we would have the running water for sewage and everything before the house was built. So this happened a number of times. They went back and forth, which caused a lot of frustration for not only for my family, but my mom in particular. Because on Peabody, on Finley Street, we had a, a, a bathroom on the porch on the outside. But on when we moved to Peabody, we had a, um, a, a bathroom built for a commode and all, all the appliances that goes in the bathroom. But we couldn't get my daddy couldn't get them to commit to running water and they never did get the sewage ran on peabody street so what option we had was my dad and mr chill brown who was the builder of the house they had to deal um building a bigger outhouse and if people don't know what an outhouse is it doesn't have running water you just have to dig a hole in big and and put um a house around it, a little small house around it. So that my parents had to do that. And on the way that we got water to the kitchen is he asked the man next door, the family next door, could he tie into his water line and he would pay the water bill. Right. So you guys had the house, but all that time it seemed like the University of Georgia was uh, you know, kind of manipulating things and headed towards this ultimately what was considered an eminent domain, right? So yes. You, yes. Can you can can you expand on that? Well, it, it was it was an agreement with what we knew of urban renewal eminent domain. It was agreement that um, this federal law that uh, the university and the UG in the city of Athens could enter in this contract because they considered this a slum area. And that's how they were able to get this property. And maybe that's why the city of Athens never did. Right. All right. So that, <laughs> that actually helped them to not develop that, kept that designation. Right. For Keep that. it under... Uh, um, a line where they could call it, call it, could get urban renewal for it. It could right. get this money and get this, this property of 22 acres. So they they were doing that. So in 1962, that's when the uh, traffic, uh, the, the bulldozers, the heavy equipment start coming in. But people, the adults in the community still didn't know what, what was going on because nobody had any meetings. 
with anybody in the community about what was actually happening. Nobody came to the community at all. It seemed like you guys didn't have like civic representation or attorneys, or maybe it wasn't because you didn't have the resources, bank accounts. So kind of like there was a lot of uh, unequal power. Uh, that was, it was power and it was, um, it was power and it was con control. That's why we were all we were calling it white supremacy because these people, the businesses, the uh, university, the city, all were understanding what was going on except the community. Community. Do you think really? it was they deliberately kept you in the dark? Yes. There is nothing in the city of Athens records with our name London Town on it. It's nothing in UGA records with the name London Town on it. It was only referred to as the slum off of Baxter Street. Right. So, so that that's what they were referring to in all the paperwork from the president of UGA at that time to the city of Athens, the slum. So that was like their public relations approach was to just call it a slum. Nobody's living there while there's, you know, what, how many families were there? 60 families, 70 yes. families. Yes. And it really hurt the old elderly people too, right? So. A lot it, of these people had to move, move. Right. A lot of these people, this was like, had, when I was born there, it was fourth, I was fourth generation to live there with, with my, my great grandmother, my grandmother, my aunts and uncles. So when this was before integration, so all the uh, communities was uh, separate, segregated right. during that period of time. This was before integration at all. So you couldn't move anywhere. You had to move from one black community to another black community. And um, during that time, I was involved in uh, civil rights, integrating the city of Athens. So I, I was being bused in sit-ins and downtown Athens and being bused to jail and going mm -hmm. to Ebenezer Baptist Church West. Right, and it, UGA was just integrated right then, 1961, right? Right, just all of this was happening. So I was being jailed in the day and coming home at night listening to what was going on in community. So it was a rough time during those years because all of this took place, it started taking place in, you know, right at 61 and it went all right. the way to the beginning of the civil rights movement, really, right there, right. right. So it was a lot going on, and I was very involved in both, but I couldn't help my community, even though I was being um, jailed and trying to help the city of Athens get integrated. I couldn't help my community. And they, you were at that time. You had to go in the back of retail store stores, and there was yes, different things to. for blacks and whites, right? I saw. When doing the integration, black, colored is that what they call it? Colored right here, black, uh, white right here, colored right here. So the signs were there. I sat at the um, the five and ten um, rest stores trying to get those places, the eateries uh, integrated. I sat at those. I um, I was spit on as I walked with my sign, and I, I was very young. So that had an impact on me. Right. So you're only 14 and the Klan is still active at that time, correct? I remember 
during one one evening at the after coming out of the Evans Baptist Church West, going to the varsity on on South on Broad Street, that the Klan was on one side of the street demonstrating, and we were on the opposite side of the street demonstrating. But they had all their paraphernalia on, all the hoodies, everything on. So we had we had all of that. But it was I was prior to fourteen. I was involved too. It, when it first initially started, and I was a member of the NAACP, so it was um, it was a struggle. It was a struggle, but even at that, we felt safe in our community. Right, the self self contained community, and yes. you had seen some of the early uh, civil rights leaders too. I think it was Meredith. I think it was a kind of a famous name, wasn't he? Yes, but I didn't meet him though. I, I didn't see him. Uh, we were a small town, so they did send some civil rights leaders down, but they were like college students oh, okay. to help us. So we we did organize with our um, our minister at Ebenezer Baptist Church then, which was Reverend Hudson. He was very very involved and instrumental to help us move from one point to the other for for um, trying to get Athens downtown Athens integrated. And so how did this process, it's kind of a sad process, like these huge trucks and bulldozers and things get raised and houses get moved as they're kind of moving in this huge kind of powerful force with backing from the federal urban renewal program. Can you talk about the tr the change of Town into UGA uh, dorms? Well, the um, like I said, it took a few years, but during this time that the transitioning period, which I talk about a lot in my book, the, the adults didn't know what was still what was going on, but um, the heavy equipment started coming in and they started digging ditches, uh, big deep ditches in front of the homeowners' homes. And we they would leave them open. And so when we got out of school, we had to jump over these ditches to get in our houses. And these trucks blocked everything. It went from that to closing off streets. So we wouldn't have access to the community, but one way. The heavy equipment started up sometimes at 12 o'clock at night and ran all night and came close to the homes, which was frightening. And we had to see some of the, the neighbors that we loved and, and supported us. We had to see their houses sometimes pushed over, but with bulldozers and sometimes set a fire by the fire department, which was disheartening. So we, we, it was terrorizing to us as children and the adults in the community. It was terrorizing. Terrorizing and hopelessness. Like there was no way to fight back. Like it was inevitable. There was no way to fight back. Cause who were you going to fight? The city and the university of Georgia, two biggest institution in the city of Athens were together on getting these 22 acres of land. All right, so they were set on that land for expansion and they kind of gave, there's still some, you said, put in your book, there's a woman who's 101 years old who was, still remembers those days. Like, And she st she's living today. She says she remember those days and she hopes that she can live to see some type of justice done. Some type of justice, right. So you got moved out. They gave what you considered to be a paltry sum to some. Did all families get monies or there was some type of 
There was Cleaner. some type of payout, uh, if, if you would call it a payout, but it wasn't because it was under urban renewal, then the, they had a calculation that they could use to pay very little money. For some people, maybe got one property owner got six hundred something dollars. Some people with got two thousand something dollars, and people who got lawyers maybe got a little bit more. But our community that was black got less than eighty. They got eighty percent less than the white communities on down the street. So like, you think you got twenty percent on the dollar of the value of the houses? Is that correct? Right. We didn't get that much at all. You didn't get right. So if your house was worth, what would you think the average house was worth at that time in Linnantown? I cannot give you the market value of what they were worth that at that particular time, but I can tell you that we did the disparity was eighty percent, and the the average was around I think four four thousand dollars. Gotcha. So and, um, I can't quote it to be exact, though, but um, but we didn't get what we should have gotten for the the property. And then after right after the property acquisition was made, we had the the property owners had to start paying rent if they didn't had to move by a certain date. So there was another yeah. means to kind of uh, oppressive means of. of Right. Imposing costs on you to move. Yeah. And did you feel that the community leaders were compromised as well at that time? Like you wrote, you called them the so-called community leaders. They had, they had um, to, con they contacted some, a few people that they say were community leaders who agreed that they could, this could not, that the dormitories could be built there and this doesn't have to be another community. So these were black individuals that I knew of as a child, but never came to our community. There was nobody from our community ever asked about uh, urban renewal. Right. So, you know, it seems like they were pretty engaged in pretty sharp practice. So everybody gets moved out and the moving process and the relocation was also traumatizing, right? It was very traumatizing. It was very, very tra traumatizing. Because you got to remember that in my in my book, I talk about there were only so many areas you could move. This is a small town. There were so many black, only a limited number of black areas where you could move to. Even public housing at that time was not integrated. So where were you going to move to? So trying to move a number of people was just absolutely hard and it was hard to find a place and there were no banks or nothing to say we will loan you this money. There was nobody lined up to help anybody. There was nothing. So my parents had to end up moving into public housing. And, I mean, it's a completely different environment than being outdoors, running around fresh air to public housing, right? Can you explain the yes. differences? Um, like I talk, talk to, and when I talk about public housing, I'm not downing public housing. I'm just saying that it's hard for a homeowner to go from public from their own home to public housing because the limits, it limits what you can do as a child. You are very, very restricted. Um, at least in in London Town, we could explore. We can go to the creek. We could make. Things that my brothers made contraptions, a pigeon cage, and 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 we could do 
different things to explore our minds and build things. You could not do that in public housing. It was very restrictive. And not long after we moved to public housing, my mom and my daddy uh, separated because of distress that had uh, they had gone through for all those years living in Leonardtown through the urban renewal process. So that threw a wrinkle, you know, basically with me and, and some of my other sisters and brothers. Two of my younger sister and brother went to live with my aunt. She already had 10 children, but they went to live with her. So my, my younger brother and I lived with my uh, oldest sister and brother in the apartment. And my parents brought money by, but still it was not having them there. And um, right. so, it, so it, it basically created a split in your family, this yes. forced eminent domain move. Right. Now, if we had a, been left alone, all of this would not have happened. We wouldn't have split up, split up as a family, but the stress of it all, but it, it caused it because I heard the the um, the stress of it when I came home each evening with what had happened that day. Uh, some people were in a turmoil. Some, you know, people were crying. I mean, it it, it was hard. It was truly hard on families. And yeah, they say think, moving is like one of the most stressful things in your life. It's just right. moving anywhere. Yeah. And, and it, just moving is stressful. And even changing schools is stressful. You can multiply that by being kicked out of, of, of your community. That's what is devastating. And that stays with you. It doesn't go away. It stays with you. It's a loss, too, because you lose ownership, property ownership, but it's also these opportunity costs. There's other finance that really are tangible. They're not right. intangible. Because when you lose the connection to the property, you lose the ability to start a restaurant, barbershop, five and dime store, anything, right. you know. So all that stuff is really lost. And that's really kind of the down public housing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the thing, the thing of it is, too, you lose the support that you had in the community. Right. You lose community. Right. That's another that's another that's tangible. That's See, not you, intangible. We lost that. We lost to all these supportive people that have been there for us, rooting us on, and we lost and that in addition. That's how your house got built in some ways is the community support, right? People came over, helped yes. out. Yes, yeah. that's how it got built. The men in the community built it. Yeah. But once the house was built, we, we couldn't build another one. There was enough, not enough time to regroup. Right. It's, yeah. It's really terrible. And then you, interestingly, you had um, your, I think your state rep wrote the intro to the book, right? Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, once we, uh, once the data was found, once Dr. Joseph Carter found the data in, in 2018 and, and, and done the research and, and, and brought us together, um, looked uh, for the descendants or once he found that because he was trying to understand how the University of Georgia grow, how did they expand? So, and um, he found the data that had been archived under the urban renewal number. So it's like R50 how, or something, right? Yes. That's how we found it. It was GAR50. GAR50, that's right. Yeah. That's just how he found the data. And once he found the data and, and start researching it, 
and he put out information about trying to get fillers out to find the first descendants. And once we uh, got organized, once he contacted one and other one, we just contacted each other and we came together and uh, really was organized around. It's not a whole lot of us. I think it was like seven of us at the beginning, uh, seven uh, seniors. But we determined that um, we wrote a resolution and we was determined that we was going to get involved in this and we was going to try to bring justice to some of the unjust that had been done to our community. At, at, at this time, that was, since we had the data, we thought it would be much easier. And there have been recent developments, correct? Oh, there have been. There have been recent developments. Our mayor... Um, after writing the resolutions and having community meetings in the community, going on tours, taking people on tours, talking to the commissioner and mayors and any way we could get the uh, raising awareness, we did that. And in um, February of, of 2020, Twenty, the resolution was voted on, and it was approved. It was voted on, and we received a unanimous vote on the resolution. And so you have the involvement, and there, like people are like recognizing the situation. What What yes. do you think the next steps are going to be, or what do you think? What do you anticipate the progress will be that takes place? Well, our mayor um, has 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 done really well. He we want the first thing we wanted was an apology, acknowledgement, and an apology for what happened. That was the first thing we wanted, and so uh, he he did write a proclamation which included an apology, and he put a team together um, that made that's led by descendants, a descendants led team on a to lead to work on atonements that are outlined in the resolution. So we have been meeting since September of last year, working on, on the avenues of atonement, which is a form of reparations. Um, we could not get direct payout in Georgia because of the gratuity clause in Georgia, which prevents direct payout. So we had to figure out, okay, we cannot get direct payouts, then what are we going to do? So um, we decided to have an allotted sum of money in the city budget, that uh, Athens Clark County budget that we could work with and identify some things that we wanted to implement. And one thing that we wanted was a black history center because we don't have one here. So we're working on putting that together um, we wanted a, a minimum wage increase for all Athens Clark County employees, whether they were full-time or part-time. Um, and this past month, I think in July, um, they, all the Athens Clark County employees who worked for Athens Clark County got a $15 an hour wage increase, which is a tremendous accomplishment. Um, we wanted a, a recognition of a a place down where the community once stood, we wanted a, a walk of recognition in that area. And we had asked University of Georgia, could we put a walk of recognition down Finley Street? And, and we never did get a reply. Asked more than one time, and never did get a reply. So we, we're going to put that a walk of recognition on this 
city of Athens right away. So it's going to be there. It's going to be a mosaic and four and three other signs with information that that was a community there at one time. Right. I mean, it's incredible. In this, uh, you have a lot of pictures of your family in that area, but also a lot of documentation at the back of your book. And looking at it, it's pretty remarkable that they thought urban renewal was to build these huge, blocky, uh, you know, dorms or whatever. I don't know how that qualifies as urban renewal. But they said there's an astonishing fact here. What, what's the document? It's the... Um, Town Resolution for Recognition and Redress, February 16, 2021. The remarkable thing that they put in writing is that, let me find this. The city of Athens sold all Town properties to the University System of Georgia for 216000 And by 2019, the university's current land value plus improvement of property totaled $76 million for an ROI, return on investment of 35,000%. Yes. So there's a lot of money involved. It's a lot of money involved. The University of Georgia has refused to come to the table with this team that the Athens, uh, the mayor of Athens put together, and we're working now. We uh, work, um, meet, you know, once a month to try to... Um, to figure out things that we need to do, but they have refused to come to the table at all. And they are hiding behind that everything was done then by the law. Right. But I mean, that's the whole thing. It's all eminent domain is legal. Urban renewal has a legal term to it. There's a quote here from your thing. Activist James Baldwin said, urban renewal is Negro removal. So he mm -hmm. seemed to key into the real uh, agenda of that. But also it's, it's just a tremendous amount of money to have all something they could uh, increase incredible values. So it's, it's yes. a shame. It's a shame. Yes. Shameful. If they had bought the land outright, then we wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't be having, uh, we wouldn't have any problems that we had. Do you, do you know what the, if they had bought it outright at current values in 62, what they would have had to have paid? Has that ever been quantified? I just um, think it would be interesting. No, I haven't. Because if they paid 216, but the actual real values, you know, 1 million, that's also another indicator that something really. Uh, they had land happen. swaps and all of that included in that, in that number that they paid. But um, so it's hard to tell when you look at that number, what all happened for them to pay. Um, $216,000. $216,000. He's like, really? But it was a lot of land swaps and things that they did among to get it at that low price. Right. It's just, I mean, these universities have tremendous resources too. So it's all the, the, the unequal leverage between Pam working class families and a university. And that's just, a, it's a disgrace. So this book comes out in September. Where's the best place for people to find Giving Voice to Linentown? Is givingvoicetolinentown.com. Giving Voice to Linentown, all one word.com, is that correct? Uh, yeah, givingvoicetolinentown.com. And it'll be um, digital copy and hardbound, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so then you can get it there. So I definitely recommend people buy a book from the authors or publishers, so don't go to him. So try to, I mean, 
I don't want to say that too much, but uh, go buy it from the, buy all your books from the authors is really the best way to do it. Um, do you have so if anybody wants to reach out to you or social media, is there a way to contact you or Twitter or anything? Um, um, you, you can reach me out on social media. You can reach uh, basically on um, on the website. On the website, do you have a contact is- contact information there. Yes. Okay. It's it's on the website. Uh, you can give voice to Leonardtown. You can reach out there, or basically you can um, it's, you can be able to reach there. Cool. Okay. If anybody wants to talk to you, or, um, mm-hmm. also I like I said at the intro, the story that happened in Southern California was called Bruce's Beach. I would recommend people, everybody listen, and how do you check that out too? Hopefully, but it's uh, kind of a, it reminded me of your story as well, where the the percentage of growth in value over what happened was an abomination. It was a terrible. But uh, thanks for writing this book. Again, the title of the book is Giving Voice to Lindentown, and the author is Hattie Thomas Whitehead, and it will be published in September of 2021. Thank you so much. Still there? Yes. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to end the broadcast. All right. That was great. So 